Good morning. Today, we are going to be reading from Jonah chapter 1. So, if you'd like to read with me, Jonah chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So if you've been with us, you'll know that we have been walking through the Bible together as a congregation. We've been reading it uh, by ourselves as we are in our homes going throughout the week. And then when we come together on Sunday, we preach through a passage uh, that we have read together. Today, that brings us to the short but magnificent book of Jonah. And what we find in Jonah is about as close to the heart of the meaning of all the scriptures as you can possibly find. And the theme of these four chapters in Jonah is essentially this. The Lord shows compassion on the enemies of his people and brings them into everlasting salvation. And can I just say that um, a message like this is exactly what American Christians living in the first weeks of 2021 need to hear. Because left to ourselves, we'll always believe that our enemies are God's enemies and that we will further find it untenable to believe that God means anything other than destruction for them. But God shows his enemies compassion. What I want to show you is the astonishing nature of that compassion, and I want to do it under two headings today. Number one, what happens in the book of Jonah? Number two, what does it mean for us? What happens and what does it mean? So, number one, what happens in Jonah? Now, uh, the narrative of Jonah is actually pretty well known, even if you're not haven't grown up in the church, read the scriptures. Everybody kind of knows something about Jonah. Um, as I read earlier, God calls this prophet to go into Nineveh and to call out against it because their evil had come up uh, before him. And um, in case you don't know, Nineveh is like part of the larger Assyrian empire. And if you've been reading through the prophets with us, then you will have heard an awful lot about the Assyrians. They were powerful, uh, like massive population, bitter enemy of God's chosen people, Israel. And furthermore, more than one prophet had prophesied that it would be at the hands of the Assyrians, listen, it would be at the hands of the Assyrians that Israel would fall. And that's exactly what happened in 722 BC. It was the Assyrians who came bearing down of the, on the northern kingdom of Israel and raised it until only the brittle bones of their civilization remained. So um, the events of Jonah's story in these four chapters actually take place before that happens. 
But such an outcome would not have been a surprise to Jonah. Like he knew the power of the Assyrians and he knew that each year, each year the Assyrians grew more and more desirous of grabbing hold of Israel because it was a very strategic piece of land between the Assyrian Empire and Egypt. They wanted it. And so when God taps Jonah on the shoulder and gives him his calling, the last thing we would expect to see is Jonah fleeing. When God says, Jonah, go, go preach in Nineveh because their evil has come up before me, that's, that's nearly an exact repetition of all those books back, you know, back in Genesis when God is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, their evil has come up before me. So for all Jonah knows, his commission from the Lord is the opportunity of a lifetime to see the enemies of Israel meet a similar fate as those in Sodom and Gomorrah. But instead of jumping at that opportunity to see Nineveh burn, Jonah flees to Tarshish. Now, why he did that is a mystery that will be revealed later. But for now, let's just continue with the story. So, Jonah secures passage on this ship, which is traveling to Tarshish, which was probably in the opposite direction of Nineveh. But then God intervenes, sends this great and tempestuous storm against it, whose winds were so furious that it threatened to break up the ship. And the sailors on the ship with Jonah, they go mad with fear because they, they could see that, I mean, they're experienced sailors. This is not good. This could be the end. And so they're calling on every God that they know to save them from this destruction. And while the men are praying for their lives to every known God, the ship is being tossed and battered. We're told that Jonah is below the hole, asleep. And unknown to the sailors above, terrified as the waves are breaking apart their ship, the unconscious Israelite below deck is the answer to the mystery of their salvation. So they shake him awake and they implore him to call on his God. And it's here that Jonah confesses that he is the reason that all of this is occurring. It's the Lord who has brought calamity upon this shift because of Jonah's own intransigence. And the solution, Jonah tells them, is to just throw me over the side of the ship right into the raging sea, and all shall be well. Now, to be clear, this will be important later, Jonah knows the cause of their suffering. He further knows the cure for their suffering, but he doesn't act on it. He says, if you want this to stop, I need to go overboard, but you're going to have to throw me overboard. He could have thrown himself, that's the solution. Jonah overboard. He could have thrown himself. He doesn't. You have to throw me overboard. And these sailors actually have enough understanding of divine workings to know that if they throw him overboard, they open themselves to judgment for the blood that will be on their hands because of his death. So eventually their situation becomes so dire that they decide to risk the judgment and throw Jonah overboard. And when they do, the great tempest ceases and they are speechless. 
And so at the end of chapter 1, we find that God has appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, I, I wish I could just keep going with the story, but let's just acknowledge that it's precisely here that a lot of people stumble uh, with respect to the historicity of the Bible. And it's not my intention, I'm not going to enter that debate here, but whether you believe it was a literal fish that swallowed him, or whether you believe it's just a narrative device, that doesn't matter for our purposes. That's not a discussion we'll have right now. It doesn't matter for our purposes. All that matters is that this is the way that the Israelites told the story to themselves, and that is what matters for our purposes. Okay, so the great fish swallows Jonah, and we're told in no uncertain terms that this act, that the fish that swallowed Jonah was done at God's appointment. And while Jonah was unconscious in the belly of the ship, he was very much conscious in the belly of the fish. And over the course of three days and three nights within that fish, Jonah is humbled and he prays to God. And here's what he says in chapter 2, starting in verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight yet. I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah's time in the belly of the fish chastened him, and he learned the key insight of this whole book, which is salvation belongs to the Lord. And so having repented and learned that God acts according to his own pleasure in every situation, the fish unceremoniously vomits Jonah onto dry land. And there God tells him again in chapter 3, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So this is the second time he's called to go to Nineveh. And this time Jonah obeys. He travels to Nineveh. He climbs onto a platform in the heart of the city and basically says, you know, uh, repent. And then the, the, the response is astonishing. Everybody's like, did you hear what he just said? Like, get the sackcloth, get the ashes. He said, repent. Maybe if we repent, maybe if we cry out to his God, the judgment that he has pronounced will be abated. It's crazy. It's, what? Salvation belongs to the Lord. I mean, it was unthinkable. 
the Lord Almighty bringing salvation to bear upon the enemies of his people through the reluctant preaching of a prophet. This was not Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord didn't rain down sulfur and fire until there was just a charred circle on the ground. And to Jonah, that charred circle is how God ought to deal with the Ninevites. Instead, God brings salvation to them. And we see at the end of chapter 3 in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And such an action is beyond reckoning for us. And it was certainly beyond reckoning for Jonah. And we see this in the first verses of chapter 4. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, oh, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So in these few verses, we see the answer to the mystery that I mentioned at the beginning of why Jonah actually fled to Tarshish. Jonah had good theology. This is how God describes himself in the book of Exodus. Like the Lord, Jonah knew the Lord's compassion. And he claims that he knew God was not going to destroy the enemies of his people, but rather take pity on them, and that was a situation untenable to Jonah. It's like he said to himself, the Lord will have compassion on our enemies, but as for me, I will not. I will not participate in that salvation. And the fact that the Lord made it impossible for Jonah to resist participation in his gracious act has left him furious. But the Lord isn't done with Jonah. And we pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well? to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So Jonah, you have, to, you have to picture it, Jonah sets himself outside of the city on a hill where he has a good view of everything and he waits to see 
will God really pardon these criminals? And while he's there, God causes, just like he did with the fish, he causes something else to happen. He causes a plant to miraculously grow up and then throw shade on the prophet who is suffering in the heat of the Middle Eastern sun. And Jonah is so very pleased by this salvation from the heat. Like, and that, that's, how, that's how he puts it, right? Uh, he uh, appointed a plant to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. But then God also caused the destruction of the plant. And again, Jonah is furious enough to die. And the story ends with this ringing question. And this question is from God to Jonah. And he says this in verse 10. And the Lord said to Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So it's here that the Lord exposes Jonah's deep hypocrisy and reveals an awful lot about the divine character. Because at the end of the day, Jonah is a book about the character of God. We tend to get hung up on questions about the fish. Oh, how big was it? Was it really a fish? That's not the point of the book. The question that this book seeks to answer is, what kind of God is this? What kind of God pardons his own enemies, the enemies of his people, with compassion? And that's the question essentially God puts to Jonah. And the answer is this. He is a God who pities his enemies. Now, in contemporary English, the word pity has kind of a negative connotation, right? Like we say to people, I don't want your pity. But biblically speaking, the word is far richer, much more beautiful. It means something like to be worried about, to show concern over. In the Bible, pity is the overflow of compassion. It's almost always associated in the Bible with the eye. Like, like it's the way we see something. If there's compassion in the chest, then the eye will pity. Above all, pity is a firm conviction that longs for mercy above justice and life in place of death. That's the biblical understanding of pity. And the Lord is able to show Jonah how he feels about the Ninevites by this sort of like parable of the plant. The plant grew up solely at the will of God. Jonah did not plant it. Jonah did not water it. Jonah did not tend to it. The plant was a gift, and Jonah pitied the plant, it says. He very much desired life, the life of the plant, above its death, because as long as the plant was alive, Jonah was saved from his suffering. But then the Lord destroys the plant, and Jonah becomes furious forgetting everything he had learned in the, in the belly of the fish. And three days he spent in the deeps. And then here's the checkmate moment. God says to Jonah, you took comfort 
in that plant. You desired that it might live. There, you understand what mercy is and why a human soul would so feverishly long for it. And then you're angry at me because I destroyed the plant. Don't you see those 120,000 souls in Nineveh? You're asking me to destroy them. And all the while, you can find pity for a plant, but you can't understand the pity I have for these people. And whether Jonah responded or had any thoughts beyond this, we don't know because that's where the book ends. And it's a fitting conclusion because the question hangs around us like a heavy fog, like what kind of God is this who takes pity on his enemies and then pardons them? So that's what happens in the book. So much more to say. Oh, there's so much more to say, but we'll save that for another time. Now let's talk about what does all of this mean? for us. What the book of Jonah means for us is this, that where we can expect judgment from God, we will find pity and mercy. And it was Jesus Christ himself who taught us this lesson about Jonah. Matthew chapter 12, do you remember him talking about Jonah? <clears throat> Jesus is in the middle of denouncing the Pharisees and their false religion with some pretty strong language, frankly. And the Pharisees don't take too kindly about being publicly denounced by some northern backwoods preacher. And then Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. Uh, then some of the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, <clears throat> an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. <sighs> I mean, can't improve on, oh, goodness. Okay, what's astonishing about this is that the Pharisees are asking for a sign from Jesus to show that he has the authority to make such denunciations right after he had just performed a sign. In this case, it was the exorcism of some demons. And the chapter before, he had fed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread. Like, he had been performing signs. And if the Pharisees had eyes to see, they would have had their fill of signs that pointed to the truth of who Jesus was, namely the Lord of all dwelling in human flesh. But Jesus says, if you can't see these signs, then only one sign will be given to you. And that's the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so I will be in the heart of the earth 
three days and three nights. Then he says, no other sign will be given to you. Only the sign of Jonah, no other sign. And what Jesus means is that he himself is the sign of Jonah. There is no more potent and powerful sign that he could give to them than his own presence, his own death, his own burial, and his own resurrection. And yet that is the one sign. That is the one sign that unbelief refuses to accept. And so he condemns the Pharisees further by saying the Ninevites, that that wicked and pagan horde, will actually rise up at the judgment and condemn the Pharisees and the scribes. They refuse to acknowledge that the Lord has visited them. The men and women, by the way, had no other sign than Jonah. Jonah preached somewhat reluctantly, and yet they repented. They covered themselves with sackcloth and ashes, and these men before Jesus refused to acknowledge the sign of Jesus standing before them. They want some greater sign than Jesus, and he has nothing else to give them. We ourselves actually share this condition with the Pharisees. Like, you hear it all the time, I just wish God would give me a sign. Just, I have, I'm not sure, just a sign. Give me a sign, which I understand. Or you see it from those who fold their arms in stubborn rebellion and disbelief. If I'm going to believe in God, then he just needs to give me a clear sign. And Christ's response to both parties is this. You have been given the sign of Jonah. And there is no greater sign. This is the sign to which all the other signs point. Now, a sign is something that points beyond itself to a greater reality. If you're traveling to Yellowstone National Park or anywhere, frankly, you're going to see signs on the highway before you reach it. Only a fool sees the sign for Yellowstone and then pulls over and rejoices because they finally made it. No, the sign is there to signify, to point to something, to show you that something greater is to come. But not everyone can interpret the signs that God gives. That's what unbelief is. Sometimes I'll be eating some food and I'll drop it on the floor on accident. And so instead of doing the work to reach down and pick it up, I'll just call my dog in to get the food. And when she comes trotting into the room, I will point at the food. And you know what she does? She comes over and sniffs my finger. And I can just imagine her thoughts, like you called me in here for this? This was, this was why I'm here? Like to a dog, a finger is not a sign. A finger is just a finger. Like, my finger is a sign pointing to something great for her. But for her, it's just a finger. She can't understand the sign. But make no mistake, Jesus Christ is the sign of Jonah. And if his death, burial, and resurrection means nothing to you, then I'm afraid that God has no greater sign for you. 
Like what greater sign could he give than himself? However, there are those of us like the Ninevites who have beheld the glory of the Lord in our midst and we have seen the sign of Jesus and it is beautiful in our sight. And the glorious truth that we have been given access to is this, that the Israelite who lay buried in the earth three days and three nights is the answer to the mystery of our salvation. He didn't require us to throw him overboard in order to achieve our own salvation. He, by the cross and his burial threw himself overboard. Our only hope in life and death is that God has taken pity on us who were formerly his enemies. And because we have believed the sign and he gave the sign that he gave and repented in sackcloth and ashes, he has made us into sons and daughters. And I can't say this even with, with, I can't conjure words that are even close to the beauty that the apostle Paul uses in Ephesians chapter two. So listen, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, salvation belongs to the Lord. And in that, we can rejoice. Well, now that we've heard the word of God unfolded, it's time to come to the table of God. As Jonah was delivered from death in the heart of the sea and then went as a sign into the heart of Nineveh, so Jesus Christ rose from the grave and is now present among us in his sacraments. This bread and this cup are the signs of God's mercy. There's nothing magical about them. They point beyond themselves to the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood for the atonement of our sins, by which, through which, we have become sons and daughters of God, beloved, cherished, heirs of the kingdom and of life eternal. This bread and this cup are signs of his pity on us. And as we eat and drink, we must remember the deep bowels of compassion 
that moved God to bring you. Even you. Even me. Into the kingdom of the blessed. And so, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you keep telling us that your salvation is a gift, that all we have is mercy, that all we can count on is your compassion. And as Jonah didn't work for the plant that saved him from his suffering, nor do we work, nor can we merit the magnificent gifts you have granted to us. So, Father, although we keep forgetting that, it must continually be reminded of the free grace in Jesus Christ. As we eat and as we drink, will you awaken our souls to your mercy? And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Brothers and